listening to another episode of Farm Focus. Pennsylvania has enacted a new civil liability law that provides farmers protections when they host agritourism events on their farms. Recently, I spoke with Joe Montenegro, who is Farm Bureau's Government Affairs Council, on what steps farmers have to take in order to take advantage of this law. Yeah, so in terms of affirmative acts that farmers have to take, there's really two main requirements. Um, The first is they have to post the right type of warning sign with the right type of language. And the second is that they have to provide or either enter into a, a written agreement or provide some type of ticket that contains a legal disclaimer that's necessary. Um, so first, getting into the warning sign, essentially has to be the right dimension and has to keep the right language. Um, so in terms of dimension, two feet by three feet, and then essentially claims a, a notice that says, read the back of your agreement or the back of your ticket under Pennsylvania law, except for limited circumstances that we'll talk about shortly. Um, you know, an agritourism operation is not liable for inter- injury or damages to participants and don't participate if you don't want to waive liability. Um, so that's really kind of the first requirement as it relates to warning signs. You know, we've made signs and we have those signs available for folks that are interested in. Uh, and then talk to me maybe about the, you know, the, the waiver or the ticket disclaimer. How does that work? Yeah, so there's two options um, to comply with the waiver slash ticket disclaimer. Um, requirement. The first is you can enter into an actual written agreement um, with the person and it's essentially very similar to what the sign says that, you know, they, the person understands and acknowledges that except for limited circumstances, they're waiving um, legal liability for, for certain acts um, that may occur when they're participating in the activity. Um, so that's one step or one way to accomplish that. The second way is you can put it on the back of a ticket um, or in our case, um, even a, a, a wristband. And it essentially says the same thing that um, the person understands, they acknowledge you know, that they're, they're waiving liability except for very limited circumstances. Um, one of the only things to remember, especially for, for tickets, is there has to be a specific size, um, specifically size 10 and the the legal disclaimer has to be in bold print as well. Um, So for those interested, we've actually created wristbands that have the right size and right um, typeface um, to comply with the law. Uh, So does this actually, you know, give a different layer of protection than another business? Like, you know, let's just compare a farm to a supermarket. Is there different now negligent standards? The short answer is yes. Um, so, you know, breaking it down um, somewhat quickly, but the, the duty that most businesses would owe to, you know, a person is based on their, their status first. So essentially they can be either a trespasser, a um, invitee or a licensee. Um, and kind of from the broad spectrum, obviously you owe trespassers essentially no duty, except you can't, you know, purposely try to hurt them. Um, and then in terms of, you know, business, um, if you have a business and you essentially have customers, you owe them the highest duty. Um, and what this does is essentially alters that standard to say that, you know, except for certain instances, which we can cover, you know, there's no civil liability um, if a person suffers an injury or, you know, while they're engaged in the, in the activity. 
So what, what are some of those exceptions, just so that everybody is, is, is clear that there are certain things that are not protected? Yeah, so there's really two kind of categories of exceptions. The first is the type of act, and then the second is the type of activity. And so what I mean by the type of act is even if, you know, it's a covered agritourism activity, you know, it's on the right land, it's, you know, appropriately farm related or, you know, entertainment activity, even if those things are satisfied, um, there's certain actions that the agritourism provider won't be protected from. And, and those, there's four of them specifically. And the first one is if they perform an affirmative act in a grossly negligent manner, um, if they purposely cause injury or damages to participant, if their action or inaction, you know, essentially equates to criminal conduct, you know, that won't be protected. And then the last one is if the provider recklessly fails to warn or guard against a dangerous condition. Um, so even if, you know, let's say there, there's a hayride and um, which is a protected activity, um, if the action relates to one of those four categories, it still wouldn't be covered. And then if there's the, the second kind of bucket of things that are exempted relates to the type of activity. And those are essentially regardless of if it's a, what I'll call ordinarily negligent act, um, you know, even if it's something like that, it still wouldn't be covered. And there's also four categories for that. The first being an overnight accommodation, second being a wedding, third being a concert, and the fourth being a food and beverage service. So let me hit on maybe a couple of things real quick. And I guess first with the food and beverage service, obviously a lot of agritourism businesses, you know, also sell, you know, cider, hot chocolate, you know, hot dogs, those type of things. Are you saying just that the, the food and beverage sales aren't protected or because those activities are there, no, nothing in the agritourism business is protected? Yeah, um, you know, I've seen some different views from attorneys, but, you know, our view, I would say, is just because you have a food and beverage service and then a, I'll call it a obviously protected activity like a corn maze or a hayride, um, simply because you have both of those doesn't mean that you'd automatically lose protection. It's just, you know, you really have to kind of, like most things in the law, it's very SPAC specific. And you kind of have to look at it and say, okay, did the injury or, you know, action arise from the food and beverage aspect or did it arise from the corn maze or the hayride? And at least in our view, it's, you know, if it arises from the hayride, the corn, you know, maze, um, it would be protected subject to the exceptions we just talked about. And if it arose from, you know, the food and beverage aspect or a concert or, you know, bed and breakfast, things like that, um, it, it wouldn't be protected. We also spoke with Brooke Doerr, who is an attorney with the Center for Agricultural and Shale Law at Penn State to get his perspective on aspects of the civil liability law. In particular, he cautioned producers to pay attention to activities that are not protected under this act. If you do any of those activities that are excluded, like the food and beverage, the weddings, the, uh, the concerts, uh, or the overnight accommodations, uh, make sure that you start thinking about the separation of those from the other parts where you clearly want to get the protection. So be more deliberate with regard to, you know, particularly like a food and beverage, for example. I mean, you know, have the food and beverage area and make sure that it's very clear if you can set it up in this way that, okay, you're now exiting the food and beverage area 
you're back to the other area of the farm where these liability limitations will apply again, so to speak. So um, be, be more deliberate about the separations between those kinds of activities, because that will prevent you from inadvertently somehow uh, voiding the, this, this limitation of liability because it wasn't clear where the food and beverage service stopped and where the, you know, where the hayride, you know, started or something like that. Be, be very mindful of the idea that some third party might have to look at this someday and determine, well, were you part of the overnight accommodation with this, when this happened, or were you part of the, you know, the agritourism activity when this happened? Uh, so I think that that's an important one. And then on the, on the miners, you know, you just do the best you can. You know, everybody faces that. Farmers, you know, dealing with the difficulty of making sure, like, well, who's signing on behalf of who? And that's a very common problem. Everybody's got that problem. It's always the same. And, you know, you, you can't do a whole lot of, um, you just do your best, you know, uh, and, and, you know, be polite to your customers, do the best you can. And, you know, in the end, a judge is going to have to sort this stuff out with minors anyway. You're getting your strongest protection from adults, claims of adults being injured in some capacity that is just a standard negligence claim. That's your best protection under this law because minors is always a little bit dicier. Sure. And I guess one of the things I, I, I know we've touched on it, but I, I guess I want to hammer home that there is actions that farmers have to take in order to get protection. You just can't assume because you've got an agritourism That's right. and do nothing that you're magically protected. Right. But got to have the signs, you know, and then you got to have either the written waiver or the ticket uh, language. So yeah, those are, you know, if you don't do those, you're out of luck. One, one question that, that we've gotten a little bit from producers is this question about language on the back of a ticket and what constitutes a ticket, because in many cases you go, you get a wristband, and that's what the operator and the employees know to say, you have paid your fare and you now can get in. You know, in your opinion, does that constitute a ticket, and especially if the waiver is printed on the back? And I think that, you know, we have a pretty loose interpretation or a pretty loose practice nowadays as to what's a ticket. I mean, your phone's your ticket, you know, in you know, a lot of instances. And so I do think that a ticket has got, gotten and it will continue to get a pretty broad interpretation. You know, so I think a wristband, you know, can be your ticket. If, if you're treating it, if the, if the farm operator is treating it like the ticket, then that's the ticket. Pennsylvania's new agritourism law provides protection to farmers against certain negligence claims. It's a level of protection that is not provided to many other businesses in the state. However, farmers could still be subjected to legal challenges if certain actions or failing to warn visitors constitutes a higher degree of negligence. We turn back to Joe Montenegro to explain the difference. So the difference between negligence and gross negligence really relates to is there a significant departure from how a reasonably prudent person would have acted in the circumstances? So ordinary negligence, or just negligence as it's often referred to, is essentially, did you have a duty to a person, and did you breach that duty by failing to act how a reasonably prudent person would have acted under the circumstances? Um, as it relates to gross negligence, um, you know, some courts, particularly in Pennsylvania, 
really struggle with kind of where the line is between negligence and gross negligence, but essentially relates to is there a significant departure from how, you know, this this reasonable person would have acted? Um, some courts use the term extreme departure, but ultimately the difference between gross negligence and ordinary negligence comes down to a, a factual determination. So it'll either be a jury or a judge deciding, you know, was this an extreme departure or was it just an ordinary departure? Um, so one way to look at it in terms of using, you know, examples, if you have a corn maze and, you know, there's some divots in the ground and somebody, you know, hurts themselves, um, more than likely that's, you, you know, if it comes down to it, that may be considered a a ordinary departure, you know, or, or ordinary negligence from how a, a reasonably prudent person would have acted. If you have a, a vehicle you use for hay rides or things like that, and it's rusty, and it turns out that, you know, the, the operator never bothered inspecting it in 20 years and, and things of that nature, that's something where the facts could rise, you know, for a jury or judge to say, look, this is an extreme departure from, from how a reasonably prudent person would have acted. Um, so those are really kind of the, the, the two big distinctions between the, those two legal concepts. So if a farm is already in the habit of routinely inspecting their land, their equipment, and, you know, the activities that people are participating in, they probably are going to flag these things before the general public ever sees them, am I right? Yeah, you know, if um, really this, this law is addressed at kind of what I think many people would look at and say, you know, no, I took all the ordinary steps, you know, of care that, that a that a, a good, you know, operation should take. Um, that's really the intent of this law. It was never really meant to kind of, uh, I'll say, protect, you know, the the extreme bad actors or extreme, you know, incidents. Um, that that's kind of the, the where where the line was marked with this legislation. So really, what it addresses, maybe, and and I can put it in my own words, the. The circumstances that a farmer can't take away from his or her operation, like you're not going to pave over the corn maze, you know, to go on a hayride, you need a hay wagon and a tractor. There's inherent risks to participating in those activities that might not be present in other commercial activities. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's fair. Um, that's a fair way to put it. Some legislation actually is drafted um, specifically on the using that language, inherent risk. Um, when we looked at it in Pennsylvania, we went a slightly different direction because um, we thought that um, the way that it was written or that we approached it in Pennsylvania would um, provide a slightly stronger protection for, for Pennsylvania farmers rather than you know, it ultimately coming down to a, a legal fight about what is or is not an inherent risk. So then just to clarify, how exactly did, did we approach that in Pennsylvania's law? We modeled it heavily on Texas's law, um, which doesn't use the inherent risk approach. It essentially looks at, was the person participating in the activity? Was it a protected activity? If so, you know, unless an exception applies, you know, there, there, there's no civil action. Um, so we modeled it um, after that aspect. Now there's, 
you know, any law that you write, there's still all, always going to be kind of details and gray areas that get worked out. Um, but that was really the way we focused it on. As Brooke Dewar notes, landowners who want to host agritourism events need to be aware of two important points. First, the agritourism activity has to occur on land that is dedicated to agriculture production. And second, the activity has to fit the definition of an agritourism activity. Thankfully, the law leaves a broad range for what is considered agritourism. The land on which the activity, the, the agritourism activity is going on, has to be land that is being devoted to a normal ag operation under the definition of that term that originally comes from the right to farm law. So it's important to make sure that uh, if you have multiple parcels, for example, uh, you make sure that where the agritourism activity goes on is also uh, part and parcel of whatever farming activity you're doing there. In other words, don't put it on some separate parcel somewhere else that maybe it might be convenient and, and, and easier to do that because that might deprive you of, the, of this liability limitation uh, because the argument might be that, well, but this, ag this, this agritourism activity wasn't actually going on on the land where the normal ag operation was going on. It was the other parcel that you have, you know, across the road down, you know, X number of, you know, whatever uh, farther away. And so now again, just to remind people, so it needs to be done on the property where your ag operation is going on. The agritourism activity itself just has to be within the definition of agritourism also. So this is another sort of a, a definitional kind of requirement. And in that case, you know, it, it's this is this is where the interesting you know sort of new ground is being struck in this law because now Pennsylvania has this definition of what's agritourism that we didn't have before, and by little degrees it can be slightly different than what another state might have used. But you have this idea of you know what's the exact words: tour, explore, observe, learn about, participate in, or be entertained by an aspect of ag production, harvesting, husbandry, or rural lifestyle that occurs on the farm. So you gotta be attentive to that too and make sure that you fit within that. You know, farmers are not the ones that, you know, you normally be thinking about something this theoretical and, and, and you know, uh, abstract as that. But um, there could be examples where you, could maybe not be, you know, the, the, the thing you're doing isn't quite going to match the definition of agritourism. For example, the obvious one would be, um, just talking about this earlier today, um, you know, sometimes when you have trail riding that's going on, let's say, not necessarily equine trail riding, but let's say that you, you know, have uh, you know, a course for ATVs, you know, or uh, somewhere on the property that's, uh, that kind of thing is going on. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that's not going to fit here. Um, and so you just have to be attentive to, okay, let's make sure that all the things that we're doing fit within this, you know, uh, agritourism definition so that we don't get outside the protections of this law. Like all good Farm Bureau efforts, our work on legislation started at the grassroots level with a policy idea being shared by a farmer. We turn back to Joe to explain how Farm Bureau policies can become law. 
So in, you know, preparing for this podcast, um, I had to go back quite a few years into Farm Bureau's files um, and see kind of where this um, policy resolution originally came from. And we have to go back to 2007. Um, and it came from, from Lancaster County. Um, so, you know, just thinking about it, if this policy was a kid, um, he or she would be starting high school this year, probably. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes uh, victories take a, take a long time to come to fruition, for sure. So, you know, other than it being a Farm Bureau policy, did our organization play any other role in kind of getting the ball rolling on this bill? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of, you know, advocating both on your side, your predecessor members going back all the way to 2007, um, and also kind of, you know, gauging what other states um, have done or, you know, have done up until that point. Um, you know, we've talked about it a lot before, but at least as a, as a couple of years ago, there were roughly 26 states that had some kind of agro-tourism law on the books. Um, and, you know, that was something that we really kind of reinforced um, in terms of advocating for this law to pass was, look, you know, Pennsylvania is a rich agricultural state, um, a lot of history, a lot of, um, you know, large urban areas that are, you know, both the, the east and the, the western part of the states that, you know, a lot of these folks enjoy visiting farms or, you know, rural areas. So, you know, given all those factors, you know, we, we felt pretty strongly that this is something that should be on the books in Pennsylvania. We had a lot of good engagement on this particular issue. They, you know, those that had agritourism businesses talked about the, you know, the ramifications and, you know, like every good Farm Bureau effort, it was, it was staff and volunteers that led it all, all through the way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like you said, it's um, something I hear a lot from from folks when, you know, you describe the PD process was, well, you know, I put something in and it, you know, it goes in the book. I don't know what happens to it. You know, in some cases, you know, we do the stars align, so to speak, and the same year policy, you know, gets in the book, you know, six months later, it becomes law. You know, that's certainly, I think, the exception. Um, but, um, you know, some cases, you know, it does take a lot longer, um, but we keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And like you said, um, you know, it's kind of a, a, a joint effort. And I think this is a really good example of how, you know, something may take a while, but if we're all kind of pushing in the same direction, eventually it um, can come to pass. If you enjoyed this episode of Farm Focus, please subscribe. More episodes are on the way and all of our past episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Podbean at pfbcast.podbean.com.